Relationships need songs. Marriages need songs to survive. And so some couples have their song. Some couples hear a song on the radio when they're dating and it becomes their song. If you're married or dating, perhaps you have a song that is yours. Heather and I, my wife Heather and I, don't really have one. The era of 80s power ballads was quickly replaced by the grunge movement in the early 90s, so we missed our chance to have a solid 80s power ballad as our song. But there were a few songs playing on the radio in the early years of dating and marriage, so when I hear them, it takes me back. So in one sense, we kind of have our songs, but you know, we have whole albums that are our songs, but there's a couple that really stick out to me. Number one is I'll Stand By You by The Pretenders. Such an awesome song. Chrissy Hind, a beautiful voice. That was kind of one of our dating songs. Secondly, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. Remember that one? You know, it was featured in the movie Armageddon. You know, there's this meteor coming to the earth. Let's fly up there and drill a hole and put a bomb in it and blow it up. And so that was kind of playing in our very early, in fact, the first year of our marriage. So that was kind of our newly married song. So maybe you and your spouse have a song. Relationships need songs. Marriages need songs to survive. And there are two songs that Christian marriages need to survive. And Peter will tell us what one of them is in our passage today. He will tell us what the most important song is that every Christian couple needs. So what song does Peter pull up to talk about marriage? When Peter transitions to address wives and husbands in his letter, what song, what Old Testament song does he appeal to? What song does Peter quote? What Old Testament song lyrics does he recite as he segues to talk about marriage? You may be surprised, but it's not the song of Solomon. When Peter starts to talk about marriage, when he begins to address husbands and wives in the churches that he is writing to, what Old Testament book, what Old Testament song does he appeal to? Surprisingly, it's not the song of Solomon. You've read the song of Solomon in the Bible, yes? The Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, as it's sometimes called, is the only book of the Bible devoted exclusively to love and romance and marriage and intimacy. I took a whole class on this book in seminary. We translated all the way through the Hebrew. It was an awesome class. And here's how my seminary prof and my mentor, Dr. Gordon Johnston, made a plug for his class on the Song of Solomon. He put this into every mailbox of every student at Dallas Seminary. And it had this picture on it. I'm going to show you in a minute. And it said, warning, if you try to interpret the Song of Solomon without the benefit of this course, you might end up looking like this. Don't let this happen to you or the one you love. I don't know if you can see that, but if you try to interpret the love poetry that's in the Song of Solomon, literally, your wife will end up looking like this. It's love poetry. It's ancient Near Eastern love poetry. All the cultures in the ancient Near East, when this book was written, had love poetry. The Egyptians had a lot of love poetry, and that's what the Song of Solomon is. And if you try to interpret it literally, your wife will end up looking like this. Here are some of the verses out of there. How beautiful you are, my darling. 
how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. I don't know if you can see the doves as eyes there. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate. Man, how many of you in those moments with your wife just whispered, your temples are like a slice of pomegranate? What? Your neck is like the Tower of David. I don't think she, a wife is going to want to hear that. Your neck is like the Tower of David. <laughs> Built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields. Not romantic. It wasn't their day because of the imagery behind it. So if you try to interpret the Song of Solomon, literally, that's what you'll end up with. It's love poetry. Every marriage needs romance and love and intimacy. And the Song of Solomon addresses that. Your marriage needs intimacy. You know what I mean by intimacy, don't you? If intimacy is not happening in your marriage, you need to talk and you need to work on that. It's very crucial to your marriage. It's not everything. Being intimate with your spouse in the bedroom is not everything, but it is part of your marriage. But what is shocking is that when Peter starts to talk to wives and husbands in his letter, he never quotes the song of Solomon. The only book in the Bible devoted to love, romance, intimacy, and marriage. In fact, the Song of Solomon never enters into the discussion of marriage or sexual counseling in the New Testament. Oh, to be sure, it's a hot topic, no pun intended. It's a hot topic these days. Pastors love to preach series on the Song of Solomon when they address marriage. And I'm not against that, and I don't think Peter's against that, but Peter doesn't go to the Song of Solomon when he discusses marriage because there's another song that should be played for husbands and wives before they play the Song of Solomon. So what book and chapter does Peter go to in the Old Testament to discuss marriage? It's Isaiah chapter 53, which was part of our call to worship today and which was part of our scripture reading today. It's the song of the suffering servant. It's what we looked at two weeks ago at the end of 1 Peter chapter two where we saw that Peter liberally quotes Isaiah chapter 53, this chapter that scholars call the song of the suffering servant that prophesied that Jesus Christ would come and die a brutal, bloody death for sinners like us. And Peter quotes that in verses 22 through 25 of chapter 2. Your translation may not tip you off to this, but the phrase, he committed no sin, he's quoting Isaiah 53. When he says, neither was deceit found in his mouth in chapter 2, he's quoting Isaiah 53. When Peter says, he himself bore our sins, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. When Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed, at the end of chapter two, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. And when he says, you were all like straying sheep, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. He goes to Isaiah chapter 53 when he makes the transition in his letter to talk about marriage and to address husbands and wives, he doesn't go to the Song of Solomon. Now, why does Peter do this? Why not quote the Song of Solomon? 
Why does he quote what scholars call the song of the suffering servant? Why does he quote the lyrics to a song about Jesus? About Jesus suffering and going to the cross to die a brutal, bloody death for sinners. Why does he bring that up when he wants to talk about marriage? Who does that? Who's writing marriage books these days? This is a brutal, bloody picture for your marriage. Nobody. It's seven steps to be a good husband, seven steps to be a good wife. Here's the romance factor. Here's the intimacy. Nobody's writing a marriage book these days that has a bloodied savior on the cover. They put like a rose and a ring. Why, Peter? It's because Peter wants wives and husbands to imitate and to copy Jesus as he is pictured in Isaiah chapter 53 and as he's pictured at the end of 1 Peter chapter two. That's why he says in verse one of 1 Peter chapter three, he says, likewise, And that's why in verse seven, we'll look at it next week, he'll tell the husbands likewise because Peter wants husbands and wives to die to self-centeredness in their marriage. Peter wants husbands and wives to lay down their lives for their spouse. And that's why our big idea today is this. Die like Jesus That's what Peter wants these married couples to do. He wants them to submit and to subject themselves and to die to their own wishes and to die to their own wants and to die to their own preferences within their marriage. He wants them to lay down their life and sacrifice for their spouse because this is what Jesus did for his bride, the church. And Peter knows that if they die, if they die to indwelling sin that remains in every Christian, if they die to self, if they die to selfishness, then the intimacy factor will begin to happen. So he doesn't even have to bring up the Song of Solomon. Listen, if you begin to die to self and sinfulness and you start selfishness and you start serving your spouse, I think things will start to happen in the bedroom. Isn't that what we want? We just want our our spouse to lay down their life for us. This past week, Rondi Lauterbach posted an excellent article on the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood website. And it will appear in the Vine, our daily email devotional that goes out. If you haven't signed up for that, just email the church office and say, add me to the Vine. So it'll appear on that on Tuesday of this week. But speaking how suffering actually strengthens our marriages, and this would resonate with Peter's audience because they were going through severe suffering and persecution, Rondi Lauterbach said this. She said, self-sacrificing love is the most passionate love in the universe. Romance is nice, but it's not the force that will resurrect our intimacy. Passion is. Christ's passion of self-sacrificing love awakens us to love deeply because he loved us first. As suffering forces sacrifice on us, Jesus helps us lay down our lives for each other. That's when he unexpectedly blesses us. We fall into each other's arms at the end of a difficult day and find we're more one flesh than ever before. So what your marriage needs today, Grace, more than any other song is Isaiah chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant, which is really just the gospel on display. That's what your marriage needs, the gospel. 
In fact, that's what any relationship that you are in needs, the gospel. So even if you aren't married, maybe you're not engaged, not dating, you still need to listen to this sermon because every relationship, parents and kids, bosses and employees, citizens and government, church and church leaders, what every relationship needs is the gospel. And what each person in every one of these relationships needs to do is to look at Jesus and then die like Jesus. Look to Jesus and then die like Jesus is what Peter is saying. Saying lay down your life, sacrifice, die to your wants, die to your wishes, die to your preferences. And we get the power to do that by looking at Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. But right now I want you to look at God's word. So look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice the word likewise here. Peter is telling the wives that they need to do what Jesus did, what he just spoke about Jesus in the end of chapter two. They need to submit and subject themselves to their husbands. Now, let's talk briefly about submission because there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. And for some people, submission is frankly a bad word. As you've heard me say before, submission is the new S word in our culture. Submission is a four-letter word these days. So number one, when Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands, he is not telling the wives that they have no voice or that they are doormats that can be walked on. That's not biblical submission. Wives are not to sit back and be quiet and never give input and just do whatever their husband tells them. That's not biblical submission. But that's how some men and some women view submission. Secondly, when Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands, he's not telling the wives that they are to submit no matter what. In other words, wives are not to submit to their husbands if their husbands ask them to go against scripture or if their husbands ask them to not do something that the Bible says that they should do. Wives are to submit to their husbands except when their husbands ask them to do something which God forbids or their husbands forbid them to do something which God commands. Thirdly, when Peter is telling wives to submit to their husbands, he is telling the wives what God has designed in creation for the marriage relationship. The husband is the head of the wife, and the wife is called to submit to her husband's leadership. You can read more about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Again, this does not mean that the wife is a doormat and that she has no voice. God has just designed this world to have relationships where there are people subordinate to others. For example, parent and children, government and citizens, bosses and employees. Now, our kids would love to be able to call the shots, wouldn't they? What kind of world would we live in if the, if the parents had to submit to their children? Candy and donuts for every meal. 
But kids want to tell their parents what to do. And sometimes citizens want to tell their government what to do. And sometimes employees want to tell their boss what to do. But God has designed this world that there are people in places of leadership and those underneath them are called to submit to them. And that's what the whole part of 1 Peter chapter 2, 13, all the way to the middle of verse 3 is about. It's all part of God's plan that was rooted in creation. The idea of male headship was a part of creation before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And we see this idea of structure, this idea of particular roles in relationships, we see that in the Godhead. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is equal with God the Father. He has the same essence and nature as God the Father, and yet Jesus submits to God the Father. He's equal. He's 100% God. And yet Jesus submits to God the Father. He doesn't try to pull rank and say, you're going to submit to me? I'm equal with you. I'm God. You're God. You've got to submit to me. He submits to the Father. Christianity teaches that there is one God eternally existing, existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are each God. They have the same essence and nature as God. They are equal, but yet there is structure and hierarchy within the Godhead. The Holy Spirit does not want to draw attention to himself, so he highlights the Son. He's always trying to point the finger at Jesus and say, glorify the Son. And Jesus is always trying to honor and glorify the Father, always trying to point to the Father, even though the Spirit and Jesus are equal with the Father. There's structure there, even though they are of the same essence and nature. So God's character is reflected in his creation through all of these different relationships. And here, that is marriage. The wife submits to her husband. Again, not because the husband is king, not because he's something special, because we all know that the true better half in marriage is the wife. Amen, ladies? So the husband is the head, he's the leader, and the wife is called to submit to him command to submit is given to the wives. So men, don't worry how well your wife is doing in this department. Don't worry how well your wife is submitting. That's none of your business. You worry about the command that God has given you. And in this passage, as we'll see next week in verse 7, it's this. Live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. That's your job, men. Live with your wife in an understanding way and show her honor. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, love her as Jesus loved the church, his bride. So don't worry how she's submitting, husbands. You focus on how you are called to submit to her, meaning how you are called to subordinate yourself like Jesus did, how you are called to sacrifice, how you are called to lay your life down for her. And that means, therefore, that you worry, husbands, about how you are serving her, how you are laying your life down for her. You worry how you are going low for her, how you are getting down and serving her, how you are dying to your wants and your wishes, and your preferences. That's what we're supposed to be worrying about, men. And husbands, don't ever, 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 ever play the submission card. Do you know what 
that is? Do you know what it means to play the submission card? It's where you tell her, you have to submit to me. The Bible says so, so submit. Oh, it's true, the Bible calls your wife to submit to you, but it doesn't call you to play that card. The Bible does call your wife to submit to you, but it never calls you to play the submission card. And if you do play that card, don't be surprised if you end up sleeping on the couch. Listen, guys, they have more power than us. You play that submission card and she'll pay, play her. Do not pass go, do not collect $200 card. And I think you know what the $200 is. You ain't gonna be collecting $200 if you play the submission card, man. Husbands and wives, Peter says, are called to die like Jesus. We're called to look to Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and then to die like Jesus. We're called to die to our wants, our wishes, our preferences. We're called to sacrifice, to lay down our lives for one another. And when we do that, it glorifies God. And that's the whole point of our marriage, isn't it? To glorify the Lord, to honor the Lord, to glorify Jesus Our marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Our marriage is meant to glorify Jesus, to point to Jesus as the supreme treasure in this world. That's why we were married. We probably got married for other reasons. And God's like, hey, your marriage is for my glory. All the other stuff is extra. This is the main point, to be a picture of Christ and the church. So it honors him. It glorifies him when we lay down our lives for our spouse. And so Peter addresses the wives in these opening verses in these churches. Specifically, he's addressing women whose husbands are not believers. Peter tells them in verse 1, if there are some of the husbands who do not obey the word, meaning they are not believers, they are not Christians, then Peter says these believing wives should try and persuade their unbelieving husbands of the gospel through their attitudes and actions. I think probably what was happening was that these women were pressing their husbands to come to church, pressing them to read the Bible with them, telling them how they needed to be in church. These wives were telling their husbands how they needed Jesus, and these unbelieving husbands were not wanting anything to do with Jesus or his church. So Peter tells the wives that they should win their husbands over by the way they treat their husbands. He says in verses one and two, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, I think Peter's saying, don't nag your husbands. Don't badger them. Don't be rude. Don't be snappy. Just love them. Pray for them. Be nice to them. Be kind. And some may be won over, meaning their hearts may open and they'll finally be willing to go to church where they could hear the gospel. Or they'll finally listen to you explain the gospel to them. Essentially, Peter is telling the wives that when their unbelievers give them grief about Jesus and the church and the Bible, and these wives want to retaliate and revile and give up hope, he's saying you should keep entrusting yourselves to God just like Jesus did. That's what Peter said at the end of chapter two. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's what he wants these wives to do. And then Peter will tell them that they should also pay attention to how they dress Look at verses three and four. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is one of the most under, misunderstood and abused passages in scripture. Peter is not telling the wives that they can never dress up, that they can never wear makeup, they can never go shopping, that they can never spend three hours getting their hair did or anything like that. And all the ladies said, amen. If Peter were outlawing these things, if he were outlawing the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, then he would also have to outlaw women wearing clothing. Because what does the verse say? Listen, you can solve 99% of theological arguments by simply saying, read the rest of the verse. What does the rest of the verse say? Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry. And some people say, see, right there, ladies can't dress up and doll themselves up. Read the rest of the verse or the clothing you wear. If you want to outlaw the first two, you can outlaw the last one. So if you want to use this passage to say that women can't get their hair did, and that they can't wear jewelry, then that means that women aren't supposed to wear clothes either. What Peter is basically saying is this. Let your beauty come from the inside. He's not outlawing dressing up, jewelry, braided hair, or any of that. What he's saying is let your beauty come from the inside. Let the gospel message shape who you are. Let Isaiah chapter 53 shape who you are. Find your identity in Jesus. Don't be a loud, brash wife who nags and badgers her husband. Have a gentle, quiet spirit that is shaped by the gospel. That's what Peter is saying. And that's what will be pleasing to God. And that's what will glorify Jesus. That's what is beautiful in God's eyes. Not spending all your time on your money and all your time and all your money on your looks, but rather being shaped by the gospel. That means, ladies, that Peter would not be opposed to you taking three hours to get ready, and then you take 300 selfies to find the right one that you can then post to Instagram or Facebook. He'd be okay with that, I think, provided Jesus was the center of your life and you were orbiting around him, provided Jesus was your treasure and your reward, provided your identity was wrapped up in Jesus and how he looked as the bloodied, beaten up, tortured, crucified Savior, and not how you look. And then Peter tells us that this is how the holy women in the Old Testament used to adorn themselves. Look at verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening Peter says that the Old Testament wives used to adorn themselves and doll themselves up by submitting to their husbands. Again, this is God's pattern for marital relationships. It pleases the Lord when wives submit to their husbands because this is God's plan for creation. It pleases the Lord because it's a reflection of his character and who he is. It glorifies Jesus when wives adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. This is how the Old Testament saints used to play beauty shop. They submitted to their husbands. But I'm sure they got all fixed up too. 
In fact, Peter will use Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example. We know from scripture that Sarah was beautiful because two times Abraham lies and says that she is his sister because he's afraid that some foreign kings will kill Abraham if they find out that he's married to Sarah, this very beautiful woman. And why would they kill Abraham if they knew he was married to Sarah? Because she was beautiful. Because they would want to take Sarah as their wife. Because she was beautiful. What does it say in Genesis chapter 12 verses 10 through 15? And this is before Abraham and Sarah's name gets changed. Here it's still Abram and Sarah. But listen to what it says. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So when the, she's so beautiful that when they show up in Egypt, People see her and they're like, we got to tell Pharaoh about this woman. You got to see this lady that just showed up, Pharaoh. She's a knockout. She's beautiful. You got to come get a look at her. That's how pretty she was. Sarah was a beautiful woman, which means that she dressed up and wore makeup and wore jewelry. She got herself all dolled up. She was very beautiful, the text says. But she also adorned herself by submitting to Abraham. In fact, Peter tells us that she called Abraham Lord. Why would Sarah call Abraham Lord? What in the world does that even mean? Well, I know for sure that it does not mean that husbands should tell their wives that they should refer to them as Lord. I mean, if you want to try that, men, good luck with that. How's that couch feeling, bro? If you want to go home today and say, look, Sarah called Abraham Lord, so you should start referring to me as Lord. You'll probably be calling me by Tuesday and saying, I'm on the couch. You won't talk to me. I haven't been eating chips. I'm hungry. That's not what it means. What Peter means when he says that Sarah called Abraham Lord is this. When Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, God, when he appeared to Abraham and Sarah and told them that Sarah would get pregnant, even though she was 90 years old, and even though Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah laughed and doubted God's word. It says in Genesis 18, 12, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, Abraham is old, shall I have pleasure? So that's the context of when she called Abraham Lord. I think what it means is that Sarah followed Abraham and submitted to him even when they went through some very crazy stuff. They left their family because God called them away. Sarah submitted to Abraham and followed him and left her family behind. You take a a woman away from her family across the country to go live in another country, that's hard on her. And she followed Abraham Anyway, she followed his leadership. It was not easy for Sarah to follow Abraham. He took her down to Egypt and lied about her being uh, his wife. 
in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 20, he lies again for the second time and say, tell everybody that you're my sister or they'll kill me and they'll want to take you as their wife. But the Lord, of course, kept anything from happening when these two kings did steal Sarah away. So it was not easy for Sarah to follow Abraham's lead, but she did. And when she heard that she was gonna get pregnant at age 90, she laughed and she doubted God. And that is when she called Abraham Lord. She was going to go along with this plan of getting pregnant, which meant that she had to do her part with Abraham, even though they were both 90 and 100 years old. You know what's happening here, right? I'll submit to you, I'll call you Lord, I'll follow your way. I don't buy this plan, but if you wanna do this, let's do this. So she followed him into the bedroom, even though she laughed and doubted God's word. You wanna do this, Abraham. If you think we're gonna get pregnant, you're 100, I'm 90. Light the candles, mood music, let's make this thing happen. I'll get pregnant. She had to follow his lead, and in that moment, she said, I'll call you Lord, I'll follow you, even though this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. So it was her beauty, her adorning to follow Abraham through some very difficult times and situations. She hoped in God even when Abraham came up with some crazy ideas like lying about their marriage. So what did Sarah do when the two kings had taken her away so that she could now be their wife, their lover? God kept anything from happening, but what did she do? She trusted in God. She kept hoping in God. I'm gonna follow my husband's plan. I think it's crazy, but I'm gonna keep trusting him. And all of a sudden, I'm behind doors with another king. And now it's the second time it's happened. I'm gonna keep hoping and trusting in God. And Peter is saying that this is beautiful in God's eyes. When wives follow their husbands, especially when it is difficult especially when the wife doesn't understand all that is happening, but they submit to their husbands and they keep hoping in God. That's true beauty right there, ladies. Trusting in God, hoping in God, while you submit to and follow a sinful husband who isn't always going to get it right. Your husband is not always gonna get it right. He's gonna do some stupid things, and it's a beautiful thing in God's eyes when you say, I'll follow him because I'm hoping and trusting in you, God. It's beautiful in God's eyes, ladies, when you die like Jesus and you trust him. Peter is saying that wives die like Jesus when they're quiet and they don't nag their husbands. Wives die like Jesus when they hope in God, even when their husbands do some stupid things. Wives die like Jesus when they don't revile others. Jesus didn't revile When he was reviled, Peter says at the end of chapter two, he kept entrusting himself to God. So Peter's saying, wives, keep entrusting yourself to God. Even if your husband is an unbeliever or if he's a believer and a jerk or does something stupid. And sometimes husbands can do some stupid things, right ladies? Peter's just saying this. Don't just focus on outward beauty. And you can Sarah was beautiful, the text says. Sarah probably took selfies. Sarah got her hair did. But more importantly, Peter says, focus on inner beauty. A beauty that takes its cues from a beaten and bloodied savior like the one in Isaiah chapter 53. A beauty that takes its cues 
from the gospel. So listen to the song of the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53 and die to your wants and die to your wishes and die to your demands. Look to Jesus is what Peter is saying and let the gospel shape how you live with your husband. Look to Jesus and copy him. For example, ladies, do you ever see a picture in a magazine and you wanna get your hair done that way? What do you do? You rip the the picture out of the magazine, you take it to the hairdresser and you say, make my hair look like this, right? Do that with the gospel. Look at Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 and fix yourself up like him. In other words, die like Jesus. Sacrifice, lay down your life. And if you do that, Peter says in verse six that you will be Sarah's children. You'll be Sarah's children if you copy Jesus and you keep doing good and you don't fear anything. Now, why would Peter talk about women fearing things? Probably because back then, as it is today, there are usually more women in the church, or at least typically the pattern is that way, or maybe the wife becomes a believer first, and then the husband becomes a believer later. So when Peter says, don't fear, he probably means that Christian women may have been in more danger if they had to sneak to church because of persecution. Remember, this is a book about suffering. They're suffering because they are Christians. They're suffering because they believe the gospel. So they're risking their neck to go to church. So their unbelieving husband, who doesn't love church and doesn't love Jesus, tells his wife this, you're gonna get us killed. Stop attending church. This Jesus thing is getting out of control. The government doesn't like this. Christians, you Christians, they're killing people like you now. And you want to run off to church? They're going to come knocking on our door. You've got to stop going. And the wife would have to say, I'm not afraid. I keep entrusting myself to Jesus. I keep hoping in God. I think that's what Peter's implying here when he says, don't be afraid of anything. And in the end, it's all about entrusting ourselves to God like Jesus did, isn't it? In the end, it's about hoping in our God. In the end, it's about focusing not on how you've blown it or how your spouse has blown it, but focusing on Jesus, the one who never blew it. In the end, it's about hoping in the faithful God, the faithful God who loved us so much that he gave us his son. In the end, it's about listening to the song of the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53. It's about listening to the melody of the gospel. It's about hoping in the God behind this verse and the God behind this song out of Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our marriages need that song. Our marriages need to know that God rejoices over us with loud singing. And it's all because of the song of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which is his son, Jesus. We'll close by repeating what Rondi Lauterbach said. She said, self-sacrificing love is the most passionate love in the universe. Romance is nice, but it's not the force that will resurrect our intimacy. Passion is. Christ's passion of self-sacrificing love awakens us to love deeply because he loved us first. 
As suffering forces sacrifice on us, Jesus helps us lay down our lives for each other. That's when he unexpectedly blesses us. We fall into each other's arms at the end of a difficult day and find we're more one flesh than ever before. And as we look at the elements that are at this table today, the bread and the cup, they're singing a song of self-sacrifice to us, the self-sacrifice of Jesus for sinners like us. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for Jesus who laid down his life. How staggering Isaiah 53 is, Father, that he was bruised and crushed for our sins, for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace is your son absorbing your wrath that was directed at us because of our sin. And yet he took it all upon himself on the cross. So you made him who knew no sin, Father, to become sin for us, that we sinners and rebels, scoundrels, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we would be able to come into your presence. That's self-sacrificing love. That's passion. So God, in our marriages and in all of our relationships, may we look to your son and see him dying and laying his life down for people who don't deserve it. And then may we go lay our lives down for people who, frankly, many times don't deserve it either. But neither do we. Forgive us of our sins as we come to the, to the table to partake of the Lord's Supper. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We never come here having our act together. We come as broken, sinful people to celebrate the grace that you've shown us in your son, Jesus. Direct our hearts to him by the Spirit now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.